Welcome to the So Powerful Podcast. This is your host, Jan Cancilla. You know the sound of my sewing machine means it's time for another episode. So let's get started. Hello, today we are talking with Christina Porter. Christina is the president and general manager of a global pharmaceutical company. And we're talking with Christina because um, she submitted a story to So Powerful and it was selected for publication in both the first and second editions of the We Are So Powerful book. The title of her story is Our Burning Home. And I guess that gives a pretty big hint about what we're going to be talking about today. But first, Christina, let me compliment you on such a well-written story. I mean, it's full of imagery and it's even self-deprecating in places, but wow, it's, it's just really engaging. So we're so glad to have you. How are you today, Christina? Thanks, doing very well. Thanks very much. And I'm excited to be here. Oh, good. We're delighted that you're here. Um, I wanna start off by um, reading a, a sentence that you wrote at the beginning of your story, um, number one, to set the stage, and number two, just to demonstrate um, how well the story is written. But th this is what you said. I am a career-minded type A personality, president and general manager at a global pharmaceutical company who travels on business a good part of the year, an insomniac, perfectionist, and nag. <laughs> Why did you describe yourself that way? Um, because I am. <laughs> I, I, yes, I have been focusing on my career for a good number of years now, um, along with raising two, two girls, I will say. But yeah. um, it's been an important part of my life, and um, so that part's true. And because my job um, is global in nature and um, takes place all across Canada and in the U.S. and we have a head office in France. I do travel quite a bit um, and probably I'm an insomniac because I'm busy thinking about work a lot but also about how to make things perfect um, as to my uh, perfectionist description. I um, I think I was raised to have a high standard and um, try and achieve that all the time. So probably I lay awake a lot at night trying to think about how to make things the best they can be. And I think that my family would say that I bother them a lot to try and be the same, <laughs> to try and live up to those same standards. So that's where the nag part came in. Okay, well, that, that's a pretty good answer and not unexpected from what I thought you might say. I, I, I'm intrigued. I, I'm retired, and um, at the time I retired, I could probably count on one hand the number of women who were heads of global corporations, and now here I have the honor of speaking with you. Um, tell us a little bit about your background, your education, and you know, what is the career path that led to becoming the head of this company? Uh, so I should clarify that I'm the head, it's a global company and I'm the head of the Canadian um, arm of it. We'll take it. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, what led me here? So I 
went to, to university and um, have an honors degree in business administration. Um, I think the, my path was set off because my dad was an entrepreneur and so I, and I greatly admired my father. And so I think um, I set off on a path to sort of follow what he did. And that's how I ended up in business to begin with. Mm -hmm. um, what did your dad do? Really, uh, he owned a real estate company. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they, they, they sold uh, residential real estate. And then he also had a, had uh, residential development okay. through his company. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, sorry, go ahead. So you went to university, got a degree in business? In business, yeah. And, and, and then what did you do? And actually, after that, I traveled quite a bit. I didn't really start working for a few years. I um, took, um, I took two separate long trips, one to travel to India and Thailand and Nepal, and then another one um, I took for a year and traveled all around the world to Australia and throughout Southeast Asia and Africa. Um, and after I got that travel bug out of my system, sort of, um, I decided that I wanted to work in an area that allowed me to travel as well as um, sort of starting to pursue my business career. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the first job I got was actually at a trucking company. Um, but I liked it because the scope was uh, all of Ontario, the province that I live in. So I got my company car and I began traveling around. And then after that, um, I moved into telecom. So I started selling cell phones when that was an early business and then just really got the bug for sales and marketing and um, visiting customers. And um, yeah. And then, after that, I started working in pharmaceuticals, and that's the career path that I that I maintain. So, um, I actually started in sales in pharmaceuticals. Mm -hmm. Well, that's that is very very cool career path. I I like that a lot. The, <laughs> the travel sounds phenomenal. Okay, but mm -hmm. besides doing all these, having all these career achievements. You also tell us in your story that you sew. How, how, did you, how did you learn to sew and what kind of things were you sewing while you were busy with your career? So I learned how to sew in home ec class. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think that's a bygone uh, thing now, but it was actually uh, one of my favorite classes. So Mrs. Elliot taught me how to sew in home ec and I really didn't do much until um, after I got married and had kids. So I did stay home for three years when I had my, my two little girls. And during that time, I um, was looking to be productive. So I pulled out the old sewing machine and started making clothes for them and just things for the house, curtains and such things like that. And then um, I really enjoyed that. And I do have quite a creative um, part of my mind that I think is very important to, um, uh, to nurture that part, I guess, mm -hmm. in order to be well-rounded and to have, a, have good mental health. So I really started just doing more and more creative things like that. But when I really started sewing mostly was the girls both um, became competitive dancers. 
Um, so I have one daughter who's really, really small. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so none of her costumes fit. And I wanted to make sure that she looked good on stage. And then I started altering her costumes and then started um, the dance, the director of the dance studio noticed that I was able to retrofit a lot of these costumes. And so I started working with her to sew costumes for ballet productions um, like the Nutcracker and then other, other productions that they would do um, for competitions. So every year they would do a big production and I would sew the costumes for that and work on the sets. And that's when it, that's when it really kicked in. Wow. Yes. Yes. I can see that you don't, you don't do anything small. You, you take it all. <laughs> okay. Well, I like I, the challenge. <laughs> yes. It sounds that way. Well, and speaking of challenge, I want to take you to the time right before Christmas in 2014 and something very dramatic happened um, for, for you and your family. Uh, take, take us back to that. Okay. So it was a dramatic time anyway because i had just gotten this job with this company and um my job was to to start the canadian um affiliate of this company to bring the company to canada mm -hmm. so i i got that in october and so i was very busy um working on proper licensing and and regulations and everything to get this company started and then in december is when this fire happened. So what, so yeah, we woke up. Um, I think it was three o'clock in the morning. I heard my daughter screaming her, her uh, bedroom is in our lower level and um, heard her screaming and then heard the fire alarm go off. And um, how old were the girls at that time? So Ellie was in grade 11, so she must have been about 15. Mm -hmm. And um, my younger daughter, Piper, was in grade 8, so 13. Wow. Teen, teen years, very uh, influential times. So, yeah. So you, you hear the smoke alarms going off, and, and in your story, you say you ran out in your bare feet. Right. So we gathered everyone up. Um, knocking on all, on the bedroom doors and got everyone outside. I called 911 and said, uh, which is our emergency number, right. and said, uh, we're having, I remember this part so clearly, I said, we're having a fire. And then we went outside, it was December, so we were up to our ankles in snow, and then just watching complete silence outside, the snowflakes were falling. Um. And then just looking, I had the two girls, one under each arm, and looking at the house and realizing we're not having a fire. The whole house is on fire. You could see every, all the smoke and everything pouring out from the windows. And that's when it really hit us. Like it was such an eerie experience to have complete silence, just the oh, snow gosh. quietly falling and the snow and the smoke pouring out of the windows and realizing it's not a fire. Mm -hmm. The whole place is on fire. Wow. And so how, how did you spend the rest of that night? What happened? So the fire trucks came and our neighbor graciously came out and got us and brought us into his home. And um, we waited there for the firemen to do their work. Um, 
and a, a real moment of, of graciousness, I think, in one way, was when the, one of the firemen, we had a cat, and we also had this hamster, and all of us, I don't know, felt so bad for this hamster, because we knew the cat could escape, mm-hmm. but the hamster was stuck there in its cage. Uh-huh. And, and then, so we told the fireman, and he came over, care, all covered in smoke once the fire was put out, carrying this soot filled cage but the hamster lived and it was just such a moment of real oh. humanity I felt oh. um yeah so then once that was over they... anyways go ahead well no that so I mean was the house a, a total um it was totally burned down uh, no, so the inside was was all completely burned, but the it's a brick house, and the four outside walls remained. So oh, wow. we were able to rebuild and have the house look pretty much from the outside the same. Anyway, and how long did that take? How long were you out of your home? Six months. Gosh, so Six now you're months. we moved back in in the end of the summer. You're dealing with a brand new job with a lot of pressure, and you're out of your home and trying to deal with insurance companies and the, the trauma mm-hmm. of all of this, that must've been a difficult time. You know, I can barely remember it. It was just like that. Like it was the constant state of um, adrenaline trying to, and, and, and the, the hardest part was trying to keep things as normal as possible for the kids without them knowing mm-hmm. quite everything that was happening. But um, my husband was amazing. He did most of the dealing with the insurance company and um, found us a new place to live. And um, yeah, I, we, we moved into to an, an apartment and tried to rebuild and try and keep, you know, get the kids to school and have their school understand what they had been through, but um, try to support them through, through it. And they continued to dance. So that was, that was quite good. And I continued, and then I wanted to sew (laughs) because that's the thing that calmed me down. And because all their costumes were burnt, we had to get those costumes back so that they could compete. So that's when I bought the sewing machine and wanted to sew. It was, it was felt like the only thing that could be comforting. And, and yeah, at that time. In, in your story, you talk about that you, you replaced everything in the sewing room, but there's two sentences I want to read. I mean, to me, this is one of the more moving parts of the, the whole thing. You said, there was no comfort in these new things. Every spool of thread I lost in the fire held a story. It was so true. I, I thought, okay, I have insurance money. I'm going to go and buy all this great new stuff. And so I got it all. And then I just remember sitting on the floor in this apartment with it all laid out in front of me. And I was organizing it all into my new sewing kit. And it was awful because there was no life in any of it. You know what it's like being, being somebody who sews. Every color of thread that you buy, you buy it for a project. Every little piece of thing belongs to something important that you made. And you made it with love probably. And um, cared about it a lot and when you open it it's like opening a treasure box all these stories come out that dance recital that outfit I made those curtains that graduation ceremony that you know 
it all just sort of floats out when you open the lid of your sewing basket. And I opened the lid and it was just nothing, just all that had nothing. Oh, all that had burned. Yeah. So all that had burned. At at some point, you found or so powerful found you. I'm not sure who who found who there. Uh, to be honest, I really believe that it, God led me somehow to that. I cannot tell you how I found it. I, I don't remember whatsoever <laughs> Okay, how you know, I found it. <laughs> we're going to take a break here because the second half of the story now revolves around So Powerful and how the circumstances in Christina's life led her to what she does for So Powerful now. So let's pause for a break. Have you gotten the second edition of the We Are So Powerful book? This updated version of the original bestseller, 4.9 out of 5 stars, by the way, is again authored by So Powerful co-founders Jason and Cinnamon Miles. It is available on Amazon in paperback or for your Kindle reader. This latest edition is packed full of moving stories about how So Powerful came to be, the volunteers who make it happen, and the way this small movement has grown into a global mission to break the cycle of poverty through education and the dignity of work. And don't forget, when you place your order, if you use smile.amazon.com and designate So Powerful as your preferred charity, Amazon will donate a portion of your purchase right back to So Powerful. And now back to our podcast. Welcome back. We've been speaking with Christina Porter, who has been sharing the story of how her family home burned and all of her memories, her sewing memories, went up in smoke with it. So, so Christine, sometime um, you, you got introduced to So Powerful. You don't recall exactly how. Some of, some of us have that same experience. Um, <laughs> What, what did you do for So Powerful first? Were you making purses? Yep. I just started, I just downloaded, I, I, I just downloaded the pattern. And I thought, wow, this is something that I could do that could have meaning. Maybe it could have meaning. So I started sewing purses <laughs> and um, really that was it. My first purse was extraordinarily ugly. I can remember that. <laughs> But that's not true, um, but we'll have to take your word for it. So, no, okay. it was bad. <laughs> I used a scarf. Like, I just wanted to try it with some, I don't know what, something I picked up at the dollar store. I think it was ugly. But I tried it, and I just felt like, um, I don't know, it all came together. Like, the experience that I had with my girls and how we had had such a tragedy, but yet we're so privileged to be able to get through it and how they were able to continue to go to school throughout it all. And that this would just be a blip in our life. Like it wouldn't. So Christina, did your early global travels play a part in, in how so powerful was meaning meaningful to you and your understanding of how the purses were going to be used? Yes, it absolutely did because um, I, I of all the travels that I did, I loved Africa and felt very, very connected to the place and and actually 
before I I came across So Powerful was trying to find a way that I could contribute that would have something to do with Africa. So it felt like when I learned about So Powerful that it was a coming together of uh, many of the things that I love and many of the things that I was appreciative for that my children um, have been able to benefit from in terms of their education and um, that they could be whatever they want to be. It doesn't matter about them being a girl. So mm-hmm. my passion for the gir- for education for the girls, for opportunity for girls. Um, and then, yes, absolutely, my, my uh, affinity for Africa that came from my early travels. Well, you know, you, you finish your story by saying um, that you hoped to make a trip to Zambia, and that's where the story ended. But um, that's where your written story ended, but that's not, that's not where your story ended, because you did make a trip to Zambia, didn't you? I did. I was so lucky to be able to, be, uh, to join Jason and Cinnamon um, on a trip in 2016 to, to Zambia. And it was an amazing experience. I felt very privileged to be able to join. Yes. And I understand that was the same trip that, uh, Shirley and Irene and Tori and Kathy, as well as probably a few other people, uh, were on that trip, right? Yeah, it, uh, that was the one. And it was, uh, it was a very fun time. And those women are very inspiring too, to be around. <laughs> So um, you flew from your home to, um, did you make that stop in Dubai and then on to Lusaka? Was that the itinerary Yeah, that's for you? right. So yeah, I flew to Dubai from Toronto and then met the gang at the airport there. And then we traveled to Lusaka together. Okay. And so um, I, I, as I understand it, the next day is when you actually went to the Nambe compound, um, sort of give us your impressions of what that, that, and when you initially get into the compound, what, what was that like? Was it what you expected or, or was that different? It was what I expected, but what was shocking about it is that it's right in the middle of a bustling city. So I expected the compound to be poverty stricken, of course, but I didn't expect that that kind of an environment would be allowed to, uh, grow in the middle of a city that appeared to be much more prosperous and, and bustling and thriving than what I expected. Mm-hmm. I, I sort of expected that this would be a bad-ish suburb of a already in trouble city, but it didn't feel like that at all. It felt like a thriving city. And then with this in the middle, right in the middle of it, that was what was shocking to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and you met Esther, who is the project manager for um, our operations there and heads up the Needs Care School. Um, describe mm-hmm. Esther. What, what were your dealings with her? Well, she's definitely a powerhouse. <laughs> she um, is, is beautiful, huge smile, welcoming, warm, and smart as a whip. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can tell she's... Mm-hmm always um always looking for opportunity um always thinking about how to make things good for the community and the best for her girls and um just um so much intelligence behind her eyes and so much outward warmth she was um, amazing to meet 
And did you get to um, participate in the purse distribution while you were there? Mm-hmm. We did. So it was really fun. We, we uh, all set our purses up on a table and Esther did her training to the girls and to explain um, about how to use the, the products to manage their menstrual cycle and had them do the, the oath that they would continue to go to school now that they had these, these products available to them. And then the girls got to come up and choose their purses. And um, it was just very heartwarming to see right there face to face with the people who, whose lives you hopefully have made a difference in. Mm-hmm. And they were sweet and, and, um, excited and grateful and um and funny (laughs) they traded their purses around and they were yeah well and those girls would have probably been maybe a little younger but close in age to your daughters right Mm -hmm. yeah exactly yeah yeah and did you get to meet any of the seamstresses that work in the sewing co-op yeah we worked with all of them so we we cut out patterns with them. We talked about um, some of the issues that they were having or ways that they could do things faster. We brainstormed on, on how to like some sort of process improvements and we worked alongside them. Um, I remember Shirley showing them how to use the knitting machine so they could make these sweaters. And we, um, we, Held some of them bring their children, just little babies strapped on their back while they're while they're working and sewing. And so we looked after their children and mm-hmm. spent yeah days with them. And it was it was uh, it was a great, um, inspiring, heartwarming adventure. And to see how, how hardworking and all the things that they have to deal with. And too many of them are, are single parents or looking after siblings and, and there they came to work with smiles on their face. Um, happy for the opportunity and hardworking and uh, very, very cheerful. <laughs> so since the trip to Zambia, how has that colored your perception or your relationship with so powerful? Well, it's certainly, um, well, it's funny because even when I was traveling there to to meet the group in Dubai, I was like, is this even real? Like I didn't, it, I only met them through Facebook mm-hmm. and I just wondered if it was even, even real, if it was at a worth, was it a worthwhile mm-hmm. charity? Was the project really what it appeared to be? And certainly when I got there, the project is more than what it appeared to be. The, the um, so my commitment to to working with them, of course, is very solidified in that um, you know that everything they do has a direct impact on those girls, and um, that so powerful isn't focused just very narrowly on uh, one thing, but on the well-being of that community and. Uh, that every every effort that the volunteers around the world who sow, who donate, uh, goes back and I'm sure is multiplied directly into that um, that community and really that whole area now. And 
I know for sure that lives of girls are impacted directly um, as a result of the work that So Powerful does. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I recorded a podcast and interviewed Jason Miles, the co-founder and CEO of So Powerful. And the, the title of that episode was Help Wanted. And he talked about traditional ways, I guess I'm using air quotes there, that people can help so powerful. But he also said, if you have a skill or a talent or a professional expertise, let us know about it so that, you know, so powerful and those that we serve in Zambia can benefit from it. Um, since, since you've been back, I think Jason has relied on you in several different instances. Isn't that true? Besides being a purse maker? I mean, yeah. I tried. I certainly would love to be able to to give more of my time in this way. But yeah, like the the latest thing was with regards to COVID nineteen. So we talked back and forth about some best practices. How are we handling it here? Um, what kind of initiative um, we've put into place to protect our employees? Um, what kind of resources we've been using to um, help patients, for example, here to help our employees stay safe. And we worked together on, um, yeah, some ideas like that. And I felt very proud to be able to um, contribute from, from knowledge that I had from other parts of my life. And, and uh, yeah, so I, I think I've helped a little bit in those ways. Well, and, and here's an area that we don't often touch on, but um, people are busy and um, sometimes uh, one of the ways that people can make a contribution is by uh, choosing one of the categories and, and being a regular donor. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? So um, obviously, this this effort takes money <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and when you have when you have a budget that you can count on um, because because money's coming in regularly it's certainly a lot easier to plan for um, bigger and more sustainable projects but I know that any donation that's made to the program is valuable I know for our family we um, we talk about what what part of the program is speaking to to us um, in terms of where we're going to put a financial donation. So there's the farm, there was the soap making project. Um, there was the COVID-19 recently um, efforts, or if it's going towards um, projects for or materials for the purses. But I think I think what's important is a can, it, what can be important to keep a program like this growing and um, sustainable is a regular series of um, giving, I guess, so that you have sort of a regular income stream that you know that you can count on and then you can plan out um, your spending and, and more long-term uh, projects that affect the girls. Well, thank you. So. If I can sum, sum up the roles that you play for So Powerful, you're a donor, you're an advisor, and you're a purse maker, besides all the other things you have going on in your life. So um, I, I just want our listeners to know that uh, you can be very busy and still be very involved with So Powerful. Christina, thank you. Absolutely. So, yeah. Thank you so very much for your time today. And 
Uh, we look forward to talking with you again soon. My pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. All righty. Bye-bye. Bye. If what you've heard today inspires you to want to make a difference, I urge you to explore the So Powerful website at www.sopowerful.org. That's S-E-W-P-O-W-E-R-F-U-L dot O-R-G. The website has great information about the organization. It's where you can download the free purse patterns or even make a donation. We hope you will join us again next week when we bring you another So Powerful story. Thanks for listening. Now, go out and have a So Powerful day.